Hello and welcome to OperaCast, your one-stop shop for all the latest opera news, reviews, interviews and general chit-chat. My name is David Ward and coming up this month, Critical Critics, A Bearded Bartley and Minus Plus One Equals Outrage. We've also got an exclusive interview with head of E&O Stuart Murphy that is well worth your time. I'm joined here in the Chapel FM studio by the conductor Ben Crick. Hello I'm, Ben. I'm back again. Hello everybody. Nice to be back. Cheers for having me. And uh, we are a panellist down this month, but I'm quite sure that Ben has enough opinions to... I'm not short of an opinion. <laughs> plenty of opinions. Some of them are about opera. <laughs> we will kick off this month with an early season reviews roundup. The Royal Opera House and Opera North have already kicked off their new seasons. Um, I had the great privilege um, of being at the opening night of the Royal Opera House's new season uh, on Monday for Don Giovanni. Uh, the stage and the times praising the... Uh, title performance by Erwin Schwatt of Don Giovanni. Um, the Financial Times said that the ending really did not work. I agree with with both of those things right. completely. Erwin Schwatt is an excellent Giovanni. Um, he's got a beautiful, smooth, firm, powerful baritone. He's a very nice-looking gentleman. It, uh, it helps. You, you can't have an ugly Don Giovanni, can you? No. No, you can't. It's, no. it's kind of part, Perfectly, yeah, part, part of the, part of the, of the yeah. character. Um, it's, uh, I think it's the third staging of Casper um, Holton's production. It's got this astonishing, it's a technical marvel, this uh, revolving set um, that has video projections throughout. And the way that the projections move and turn and adjust as the set is moving, it's quite... You know, it's, it's one of those things that you just sort of sit there going, really clever. this yeah, is lovely. Yeah, yeah. And I've said before, I think there's a there's a reason to give at least one company a lot of money, <laughs> pile of money. to do what they want, and they've spent it beautifully. Um, what was uh, really wonderful for me, well, yes, the set was, was fabulous, um, but this was also Louise Alder's Royal Opera House debut. Um, she was singing Zelina, and she was fantastic. Zelina is one of those roles that can sometimes just be very wet, yeah, there's um, not much for her. Yeah, quite, yeah. quite dull. But Louise Alder is such an outstanding performer. Um, she brought a real kind of nuance to the role with, with keeping a lot of that innocence as well. She was fantastic. The audience loved her um, as well. Um, so, so a great opening to the season. You can see Don Giovanni from the Royal Opera House at cinemas on the 8th of October. Um, the, the day after, on Tuesday... They That's op- where I'll see it. I don't, get invited. <laughs> I don't get invited to the opening night at Covent Garden. Yeah. So um, I'll see it at the cinema. Yeah. Well, well worth a watch. I'll, um, I'll be there. The day after, on Tuesday, they opened Verte. Um, Financial Times, uh, uh, Juan Diego Flores is a class act. Uh, both the Guardian and the FT agreeing that Edward Gardner's conducting was outstanding. However, the stage said that it failed to catch fire. Um, now, we I would say we don't usually kind of do reviews around it, but it's quite... Critics is a big of talking the moment, point. So I'm, I, yeah. I was keen just to get yeah, some, yeah. Of them in, some of them in here. Um, so that's going on for the next um, few weeks at the Royal Opera House. Uh, Upper North also opened their new season uh, last week with the Greek Passion by Martinou. Um, four stars across the board. It's, it's gone down really, really well. Um, I haven't seen the production yet, but I've seen some of the photos. There's an uh, astonishing kind of chorus that have been... Um, kind of created out of clay this this sort of like huge almost kind of like the terracotta warriors type that's, of that's quite cool type of yeah. thing it, it looks astounding a real kind of opera for uh, our time so that's gone down really really well and um, also in opera north's uh, current season julius caesar and also La Boheme. 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 La Boheme. Boheme. Yeah. Uh, so i'll be seeing those uh, over the next uh, few weeks looking forward to that um you know 
open in a couple of weeks' time with Gluck's Orpheus, directed by Wayne McGregor, 1st of October. That opens Scottish Opera, uh, currently on a highlights tour, uh, and their Tosca, or as my uh, iPad says, Tosha, opens on the 16th of October. <laughs> and Welsh National Opera's new season opens with Carmen on the 21st of September, which may be in the future or in the past, depending on when you're listening to today's podcast. podcast. There's only Opera North really straying away from the standard repertoire there, isn't there, with the Greek passion? There's a, there's a lot of straight-up standard repertoire at the minute. Yeah, there, there is to kind of open the season. I mean, it's really interesting, uh, ENO's new season, they're opening with, with Gluck's Orpheus, but they've got this kind of um, quadrant of, of, of Orpheus. Oh, they're doing the um, Bert Whistle, they? are the they? Gluck, the, the Bert yeah. Whistle, the Glass, um, and the... Can't help you out here. Uh, <laughs> I, don't know which, I know they're doing the Bert Whistle. It's another the... one. I want to say Offenbach. And they're doing Office in the Underworld. That is yes. off and back, yeah. yeah see, right. there, we are. there we go. Good. And they couldn't one... be further away from the Burt Whistle. That's quite good. So that's, that's quite interesting. And there's some, you know, some interesting things coming out of the Royal Opera House's um, season as well. You know, I think for, for a house like that, you've got to kick off the season with... Don Giovanni. Flashy. Don yeah. Giovanni. And then the Verte, Juan Diego Flores, Edward Gardner... Um, you know, an all star yeah. kind of kind of cast to open open the season. It still seems strange um, Gardner being at Covent Garden. It's, it's still English National Opera in my head. And then a, a year or two away. I'm going to say you're, you're a few years. I'm a few years. years a year or two away in Germany, wasn't it? And then we were back at the Garden. Yeah. Yeah, I still find it weird seeing Richard Farns at things like that. Uh, anyway, it was other than Opera North. North. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, he um, was great. His ring cycle at Opera North was the best conductor I've ever seen. Just to throw that in there, Richard, if you're listening, it really <laughs> was fantastic. It does, it, it does so little, and I mean that complimentary, until the, the big moments. So the big moments are something. It's not like he's blown his powder earlier on in that. He's saved for these moments. Fantastic, fantastic. Nice one, Richard. Mm. Um, so yeah, we we look forward to some of these. Uh, the rest of the season's kicking off. We can say goodbye to the summer festivals, yes. which we've we've covered in depth on on Operacast. And hello to the the main stage, uh, the, the the big uh, five companies once more. Now, a story that we can't get away from, that Opera isn't going to get away from, nope. is uh, the ongoing saga around Placido uh, Domingo. Uh, we we spoke about it a little bit on our festivals special mm. uh, last month. Um, however, now more women have come forward with allegations um, around Domingo. Um, he says that he's uh, he finds these deeply troubling and, as presented, inaccurate. Um, interesting use of as presented, yeah, yeah. Slightly, slightly couching it there. Um, Dallas Opera have cancelled a gala due to feature Domingo. Um, however, he is still scheduled to perform at the Metropolitan Opera on the 25th of September. So from the date of recording, that's five days away. We'll we'll see we'll what see. happens there. Yeah. He's still scheduled as well to appear at the Royal Opera House next year. Um, and if you want to go to the cinema, um, we'll have this in our roundup at the end of the episode, but the 1st of October, there's a special uh, Placido Domingo concert from Verona on the 1st of October. October, um, which is still going ahead. Is that going ahead, yeah. It's still going ahead. Um, I mean, what are your thoughts on, oh, on, thoughts. on this, Ben? It's, it's, it's a real difficult it's one. It's a very difficult it? one. It's been an open secret in opera for decades that, that Plasto Domingo is a bit that way out, isn't it? This, this, this isn't new news to anyone. Um, but the, the, the later stories seem to be a little more insidious than the earlier ones, and there seems to be, it seems to be on a scale. That, that we didn't explain. I remember a bit ago watching a Harvey Weinstein documentary and I had an education here because I thought it was actress actresses sleep with Harvey Weinstein for a really good gig. And I thought, right, it's a bit unsavoury, that, but I'm sure the world had gone around like that for a, for a while. That, that's, that's how it is. But it's not. It wasn't that. It was the systematic 
abuse of like interns and people who weren't after all, just people who were absolutely powerless in his situation was totally powerful and a complete abuse of power. And I had an education that it's it's worth it's worse than I thought it was gonna be. And the more of these stories that come out about um, Placido, they, they seem to be going that way. It's not just some aspiring chorister thinking this will be a, a boost up. It's an, it's an abuse of power. It's a consistent abuse of power, and it appears to have been going on for decades. So I think it's, it's going to be very hard for the Met to do a concert all about him. I mean, even even like the surely it's going to be plastered with protesters. Surely, surely you, you, the the practicalities of doing a gig. Is it isn't going to work? Yeah. Forget the moral side of it, which I personally think that she'll probably pull the gig. He doesn't need that platform now. Yeah, well, we've seen things that uh, it wasn't that long ago at the Met when they had um, Klinghoffer. On. Yeah, there were a lot of, yeah. lot of uh, debates around that. I can't remember if the performances were were, were cancelled or not. I think but... they did it. I think they did Klinghoffer, but that was different. That was it, yeah. I'm not. I'm not. Compl- yeah. I'm just you know in terms of uh, you the know, that, that yeah, kind yeah. of power. Um, yeah. I... As you say, it's a really difficult one, and but it is, it, what seems clear is that this has gone over a line of someone, you know, as you trying said, trying it on a bit. Things, you know, yeah, you know, a bit different, which doesn't make things right, no. but you know, uh, working places were different, but but kind of taking it to a, a different level of the uh, that kind of abuse of power thing is yeah. what it comes down to, isn't it's it? That... Whether there's illegality involved or not, you know, there's a, a moral compass that we there kind is... of put on these sorts. Of and I'm things. sure it's changed. And I'm sure in. If you're a superstar in 1972, I'm sure it was a very, very different world. But we do, we do view the past through modern eyes, and we do, and we continue to. The big thing at the minute, isn't there, about celebrating Cook in Australia, Captain Cook, as this great sort of explorer, or actually was he a colonising tyrant? And and so, and so we view him in different in different eyes. But he's so long ago that it becomes a study. Well, where do we draw the line if we people behaved in 1970? In a way that's completely and rightly unacceptable now, what what do we do? Do do we address that behaviour in with modern eyes, or do we just sort of say, well, that was then, and we move on? Mm. Or does it or does it need rectifying? Do we need to address that behaviour? And it's a big question, and yeah, and I think there's going to be more. I think there's going to be more coming out of. The woodwork. I don't think we've heard last of this one, have we? Yeah, and we'll see. And he he is almost a unique case, and obviously not only just being a, a, a superstar singer still. I mean, he but, is. But, yeah. but but still having artistic control over companies, having his operaria yeah. competition. He is in so many nooks and crannies yeah. of, of opera. It's not a case that you yeah. can just sort of you know take take him out of your, your stage performances, and that's Domingo sort of sidelined. He's he's yeah. everywhere. But the thing is, that that comes into the power dynamic as well, doesn't it? Because it's one thing being an international tenor. I'm sure you can put a word of some baritone. Or bar- let's be clear, it's not a baritone. <laughs> let's be absolutely clear on that one. The lad's a tenor. Um, but if you're if you're giving out work, if you're conducting at the Met, which he has done, if you're if you're that influential, it's an absolute abuse of power. Mm. That's what. That's what morally object to more the the abuse of power, not the fact that some old bloke tried it on. It's the fact that a bloke in a, a position of real power tried it on with people who hadn't, and it's nasty. Uh, precisely, and the, the motives are very deliberate. Yeah, I they think are. is the thing is it's not just sort of uh, uh, not not behaving in an appropriate way or sort of being a little yeah. bit, as you said, things people did in the in the in the yeah. the past were not necessarily malicious, but. Not well received. They're unsavory. Whereas, whereas yeah. this does seem to be quite. And the news stories seem worse. The news stories seem worse. That the further the stories come out, I think perhaps the first stories that came out was any comment was worthy. When there's a load of that, the stories that are getting reported now, the ones that are more insidious, and they're the ones coming out. So it's going to run. 
We haven't yep. heard last of it. No, abs- abs- absolutely not. Yeah. Um, and as well, just to, to um, slightly, slightly sidetrack, you mentioned Weinstein there. Um, yeah. Really interesting, this week, the, the New York Times uh, daily podcast, I've had a couple of episodes about their investigation into Weinstein. Yeah. Um, well worth a listen. Um, I mean, one thing I didn't realise about those was that he, he brought on board uh, a particularly well-known feminist lawyer to kind of help him help him out. So, yeah. The, the type of person that should have been um, kind of going after Weinstein, yeah. you know, he paid it handsomely and brought her on board to kind of try and have that some of that glow, glow of, um, of... I, just... I mean it's, it's an astonishing story it's it's well well worth uh listening well, to, to new york times uh coverage of, of the particular weinstein story a really really fascinating listen um so yeah so let's see how domingo let's, goes yeah we, we we continue to see as we mentioned on the festival special this the the different ways in which companies in the u.s and companies in europe seem to be treating this there is yep. generally slightly more of a uh if i'd say blase attitude from the european side apart from the metropolitan opera very interesting but it's like you said about this female lawyer who should have been going after harvey clearly he said i'll give you three times your fee or something and the metropolitan are thinking we're going to make a load of money money talks and money still talks in all these situations it's money isn't it yeah the metropolitan thinking there's a load of money here yeah and, and there's the, the big question for the companies is probably less so what is our moral compass and what are yeah. the ramifications of this it's, it's similar when we talked about you know the roll up house take on the bp sponsorship yeah you know, obviously there's the issue of the 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 money around it but if the reputational damage is so great it will stop what i'm really yeah. what i find really odd is that if the met are keeping him on on board in just a, a few days time surely that's huge reputational damage for them it must be you'd, you'd think or they think are they are they still convincing them that this will blow over? Um, but they can't be, can they? They can't. I mean, are they? Are they? They've sold X number of tickets. We'll have to refund. And we'll have to re- refund. Because, all. Is because, it really that that cutthroat that financially there's there's no argument to do so? Well, there'll be a big trench of audiences, and I dare say a lot of the audiences that booked to come and see Domingo at the Met that have booked to do that. Yeah. And yeah. you know, if suddenly he's cancelled, as you say, there there may be a very big. Um, you never get against it. Yeah, you never get the feeling that the Metropolitan shot of cash, though, do you? You sort of think they might be able to withstand that. I don't know. I don't. I don't know. It's it's a decision for each individual individual company. But more and more of these companies seem to be cancelling these gigs. Yeah, we we will wait and see. I yeah. say from the time of recording, he's he's performing at the Met in five days' time. Um, keep uh, keep track of Opercast on social also, media. Also, to he's find not out. a very good baritone. <laughs> Just putting that out there. He's not a baritone. He's a name above all others. Yeah, that's though, what it, he? Yes, he is. Yeah. He's a name above all others. Um, yeah. So let's 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 see. Now, this uh, I've put it alongside in the agenda uh, uh, an article from Vanity Fair yeah. magazine from a couple of days ago. Opera is having a woke renaissance Look. i mean from what we've just discussed it it doesn't appear as though it is not particularly um, is it no now th- this article will we'll link to on again social media so do follow us to, to check it out um, it's not an especially in-depth article no and um, but for me actually what this highlights is the huge contrast between u.s stages and uk stages that there are so many new works on the u.s stage and the works that they're doing tend to be um, popular films, I think, have been things like *Brokeback Mountain*. Uh, yeah. Popular modern, pe- uh, there's the Steve Jobs Steve opera. Jobs opera isn't there? Um, you know, they're partly it's how do you uh, show work in, in more of a woke way. Yeah. But it's also it's also about how do you get new operas on the stages that are telling stories and telling things that actually modern and younger audiences yeah. will 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 know about. So that's what I think this got me thinking about with the article, rather than this sort of thing is opera. Oh yeah, the uh, um, what we want is sta- surely what we want is a stage. That that mirrors 
society as we see it. That, that we want an opera stage and the new works of Because they always were. When Mozart writes a marriage of Figaro, the Beaumarchais plays band in it. It's um, this sort of like call to arms for the French Revolution. It's this um, challenging of the social order of the days. These are absolutely con contemporaneous works. And we want modern works that reflect the society in the same way. So that there should be stories from all aspects of society, be it the, the, the BAME societies or, um, or any of the minority societies we've got. But the fact I'd hate, if I was, because I'm not, I'm, obviously I'm a white bloke, but if we had a situation where I was creating a piece of music, a piece of art that I said something and it got pigeonholed going, right, here's a work by a white working class guy. Surely that devalues my work. If I'm a BAME artist, I want my work to be judged for the piece it is. And I think we do these people a disservice. I think these women conductors, they, they're really good, top-level professional conductors. And they get pegged up as women conductors. They're not. They're conductors. They're very, very good, fine professional conductors. And we do these communities, we do the gender gap a disservice if we package it as, oh, it's work, that's why we're doing it. We're not. We're doing it because it's a, a good work of art, a story that needs telling, created by a creative and talented individual. And we need to see works as the value of the work, not how we can pigeonhole the creator. Mm, but it's how we get there, isn't it? It's, it's, it's yeah. this need of a kind of positive discrimination or kind of positive action to kind of... Well, we had this conversation um, when Sophie were here from Swapra, didn't we? And... And yeah, we do. I th what we need, and I don't know how you get this, is genuine equality of opportunity. I, I think we should measure it by the opportunities we give everyone, not by the outcomes. If we say, right, 50% of the society is a bloke, 50% of it's a lady, therefore we're going to have 50% of our operas written by men and 50% of our operas written by women. That's not, that's not real. We're not going to get that split. What we should have is everyone on this base level should have equal opportunities and then hopefully the cream rises and you end up with an artistic output that's by the most committed, talented individuals we've got. Now, far be it from me to tell you how to do that because that <laughs> seems a, a big task, but it's not, it's not at the top level. It's right, the opportunities start right, right, right at the bottom, like... I mean, my, my lad plays the viola and he plays the viola because me and his mum made him play the viola for as a kid. That's so he's quite good at the viola. There's no happening in schools. There's no, and then when they're a bit older, somebody comes in and goes, do you want to play piano? Well, it's too late then. So we, we need this sort of like wide, wide grassroots opportunity mm. to high level arts. And if you're doing an arts project about opera, let's make sure it is about opera, not dumb it down to the point where it's not about opera. So expose everybody to the greatest creations that our art form has have that wide base of opportunity and then hopefully the cream will rise but that's not what's happening at the minute no but the, the, i think the, the question around this article and um we'll we'll come on to it when we um talk about the, the Stuart murphy interview yeah. as well is that it's all very well and good getting people to go and see figaro or bohem or whatnot but if these are but if these are stories that just don't resonate with people mm. because they were written hundreds of years ago for a particular audience and they're and they're still being made, I would argue in the UK opera is still being made predominantly for a certain type of audience, yeah. then how are we gonna get the how are we gonna get opera to to speak to people if we're seeing a heritage art form more more and 
not not more and more, but the the more I kind of think about opera, how it's been presented generally, yeah, is that it is it does feel a bit like a museum on a stage. Yeah, yeah it does. It, it, <laughs> it does. Like, it's it some does. sort of heritage art form, and I think that's the that's the big thing about these sorts of things about you know fine op- opera's work or whatever. Let's let's ignore that. But horrible actually, word. <laughs> yeah, it is a, hor- it's it's a horrible, horrible word. word. It, it's 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 clickbait basically. Yeah, yeah, it? and it just yeah. Um, yeah. But you know, are we actually in a position where opera is is speaking to people today and i would say that no look i mean we say you yeah. know putting on new opera is really difficult but at least one thing the u.s does seem to be doing is is more of it more new opera and more new opera that okay who cares if they're doing the manchurian candidate okay it's yeah. quite an old film now yeah, but yeah, yeah. broke back mountain, mountain or whatever it might might be where it's like look here's here's stuff that you know from popular culture we're going to make it into an opera and stick it on a stage because it's something that resonates with you yeah i'd it's, it falls into gimmick. That's my fear. My fear <laughs> of that is it falls into gimmick. I have an innate belief in the art form. I have an innate belief that Fidelia is about the right of free speech. Now, there's no way anyone on this planet can argue that the right of free pe- speech is not relevant now. I was going to say. Yeah, it is. But the problem is we're presenting it so often. I, I either see it in a, an 18th century French prison, really dated, or just... It's a prison of the mind, and it goes really weird. And nobody can just sort of seem to present these operas where we we distill the essence of the truth in the work. That the the oppression of free speech is something that should be fought against. That's what Fidelio is about. Why can't we get directors that present it in a way that get that message rammed home and and how important it is without going weird, without just making it really really odd or really really dated? Figaro's about sort of like a meritocracy where the right the, the people's skills should ride to the top or otherwise Carmen's about how we treat women these are all relevant points that are as relevant today as they ever have been mm. possibly more so in some cases but we don't appear to be able to extract that truth from the work without shrouding it in all the baggage that's come over the last 150 200 years mm. let's pause this for a second yeah. and we'll come back to it after we've heard what Stuart Murphy, well, Stuart, yes. the, the chief exec of English National Opera, has to say about this. I had the pleasure of sitting down with Stuart last week to talk about his time so far at ENO, many of his new initiatives, some of which have been well met uh, from some quarters, have, have not been <laughs> Others haven't so been. well met. And, and this discussion about how do we drag opera kicking and screaming into the 21st century. So, Stuart, 18 months in, uh, new season about to start. How's things? Good, actually. It's been quite a hectic 18 months, but that hasn't surprised me because um, I came from a world of TV that actually is quite fast-moving, and any job I do, um, uh, I end up trying to do things quite quickly. Um, But yeah, it's been good. I think um, I love opera, so it's been an absolute joy to sit in uh, the Coliseum and hear opera constantly and you know you hear rehearsals in the background all the time um and yes that's been amazing um it's also really lovely um at the age of 47 to move to a completely new industry um that has a whole bunch of people who think really differently to what i'm used to um i've never worked this closely with this sounds insulting (laughs) it's not meant to sound insulting i've never worked this closely with talented people before (laughs) in the sense that in tv you meet actors and presenters but often at a distance whereas here on the management team is a director uh, is a head of music who 
is you know a, an amazing musician or Martin Brabins, uh, our director of music, who is you know incredible conductor, um, brilliant singers. You you literally meet them constantly, so that's a total joy. Um, and then I suppose the things that I wanted to do quite quickly were reposition ENO so that it plays to a much broader audience than it has been. Um, and we've done loads of things um, with you know pretty pretty successfully this past 18 months um so i think we're coming to the end of what i would think is phase one <laughs> so okay yeah, it's gone well, i think i mean certainly i mean opera cast has only been going since january but i think we've talked about you know more than anyone else and i think it's because as you say kind of quite a fast pace of uh, announcements things that you've obviously wanted to, to change mm. um now obviously one significant setback you've had is daniel kramer the former artistic director leaving and mm. um, i mean how has that affected things for you so, um, Daniel was brilliant. Bundle of energy, um, curious about the world, um, uh, really passionate about new talents, loves ENO, <clears throat> and, um, you know, scheduled five seasons. So, um, uh, like a force of nature. Actually, in, in real life, outside his day job, you know, naughty, funny, really kind, sort of um, a huge fan of Daniel's. Um, I say all that because... What, what I'm about to say, I don't want to come across in an odd way, but uh, I wouldn't see Daniel leaving as a setback. And what I mean by that is um, a national, opera com national arts companies need to have a constant uh, turnover of fresh, creative um, uh, talent, I think. Um, in some areas, that should probably be once every 10 years. In other areas, it's probably every couple of years. Um, that's why we're only on five five-year contracts um, in some areas. So I think with Daniel, um, he had scheduled five seasons. Um, his international career in terms of directing was taking off. Um, I think I turned up and um, there's a whole bunch of things I wanted to do and he helped us do them. Uh, like bringing on black, Asian, minority ethnic audiences, uh, bringing on more uh, women in terms of senior positions, in terms of conducting um, or librettists. And, um, and he felt the time was right to move on and we, you know, he did it with our blessing. It, it wasn't a setback. It wasn't, didn't feel like a crisis. Um, uh, people were sad that he was going, but happy that a new person was coming along. So, um, and you know, in the spirit of honesty, Things that I suppose have felt like a setback have been um, uh, this past 18 months, the, the slight difficulty, it's that how hard it's been getting some commentators to um, have a modern view of ENO and not a view of ENO that's been sort of rooted in the 80s. And I take responsibility for that. Well, don't worry, because we'll, we'll come on to that. <laughs> okay. um, it's very interesting what you're saying there, because I suppose, and, and again, you know, this theme of um, thinking about opera differently, I'm sure will be a theme in this, in this interview, but... Generally, as we know, with, with opera houses, the model is you have an artistic team in place for a very long time. You get new directors and conductors coming through, but there's an artistic team there. And, but they kind of provide the continuity for underneath. But for you, you see a much higher churn of that top level of thinking. I think so. I mean, you touch, you touch on a really significant point. I, th I think lots of um, places that are um, uh, uh, entertainment genres, like theatre or TV or film or um, musicals or ballet, um, constantly keep 
um, in touch with the audience. They either do it through audience research um, or they do it because people who work in those genres uh, cross-pollinate from other genres. And so they constantly keep moving with the times. Um, and you can see it on stage <clears throat> or in movies or in TV or in ballet. They look like London on stage or Britain on stage. Um, they tell the stories that are really modern. Um, they act in a modern way, so they um, have learned lessons over the past 30 years on how to run companies well, um, uh, and, uh, and they keep being modern. My sense is opera hasn't done that to the same extent as other areas. Um, and so you look at, uh, even, even the announcement of my appointment was met with abject horror in certain areas that how could someone from a different industry possibly know how opera works? Um, and this is even though Tony Hall moved from you know, um, BBC to the Royal Opera House with success, Jeremy Isaacs did exactly the same. Still, this is an, uh, an industry that is, uh, in certain areas, really self-referential and fairly closed off. Um, and, uh, and so then, you know, you look at opera as a medium and you think, well, why are the reasons for that? Because no one is um, innately unpleasant or not out to modernise. I think the, pro the difficulty with opera is it's a medium that is, that is um, difficult to modernise because you've got um, the words are sort of set, the music set, and there's a certain way of doing it, and people are not used to taking that apart and putting it together um, and getting congratulated for that risk. It's quite a kind of risk-averse genre, I think. Um, so, yeah, so I think opera needs to update and refresh just as much as other areas, um, which is why, for instance, um, we... Um, are looking to uh, and have hired people from out of sector. So, um, you know, in this interview, the third person that's in this room is uh, Olivia, our director of comms, has come from theatre. And that's good. It brings a whole lot of expertise from that industry. Um, you know, our director of marketing is from Ticketmaster. Um, and time out again brings a whole different set of perspectives um, and we, we've done that all through the organization I think in the 18 months I've been here probably don't know a seventh or a sixth of our staff are brand new We're just trying to get in expertise from elsewhere um, to bring it up to date so looking to the appointment of the new artistic director you, you recently wrote an article in the evening standard and you said that it needs to be someone who's familiar with pop culture I'm a celebrity Marvel films etc etc yeah. I suppose the question is does does that person actually exist in opera? Um, and, and, and if not, would you appoint someone from outside the world of opera to be the new AD? Um, so yes and yes. Um, <clears throat> so um, for every person you meet in opera uh, that doesn't have a TV license or a TV um, or go to the cinema, you'll meet sort of 95 people who do. They just tend not to talk about it. I think because... Um, uh, when you get in an opera house, it can behave very much like a kind of closed boarding school. I think people spend time with one another, they work really long hours, um, they comment on one another's work, and it, um, it doesn't help that the world that comments on opera, the reviewers, um, tend to not be that familiar with other genres as well, generally speaking. Um, so, but yeah, when you, when you get beyond that kind of... Um, 
a good old anecdote that you've met someone who doesn't have a TV in opera, you find that loads of people are very familiar with what else is happening in society. So, yeah, of the people we're interviewing for the AD job, lots of them are really familiar with what else is going on in the world and, you know, culture and politics and music and fashion and they know about that and that's key for this appointment. Um, if we don't appoint someone from the opera world, would I appoint someone from outside the opera world? Yeah, if they've got the artistic chops, definitely. I suppose what I'm looking for is um, someone who can help us all take ENO to, um, uh, to, you know, through the next 10 years with real confidence. So do it according to our values of kindness, brilliance, national impact. Um, they can re-establish ENO as the, as the place for adventurous theatrical opera. They embrace the fact that we're an opera house where half the audience have never been to opera before, so they are inherently open to welcoming new people in. Um, that they're obsessed with world-class brilliance in the pit and on the stage, but prepared to take risks. They're not scared of failure. Um, uh, and, and yeah, and that they're they're a nice person who cares passionately about the art form. Now, obviously, this, I suppose, mirrors yourself, someone who um, really loves opera. You know, you had some experience as a teenager in, in, in Leeds playing in pits, um, but obviously your professional career has, has been in television. Um, and you mentioned earlier you had a lot of, there was a lot of pushback to your appointment. Was that something that you were anticipating and prepared for? And was it something, do you think, that, you know, kind of board were prepared for as, as well? That's such a good question. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I was prepared for it because a, a couple of people who'd made a similar transition um, so uh, had, had said whenever an industry takes on a sort of senior leader from another industry, um, there's sometimes consternation. So I'm not comparing myself to these people because they've had sort of glittering careers. But, you know, Adam Crozier has moved from, uh, you know, from the FA to Royal Mail to ITV or... Um, you know, the chief exec of ITV came from the airline industry. Um, oh, you see, there's lots of examples of people moving around, and often the, you know, the receiving industry will go into a kind of um, industry neurosis for a short amount of time. So people said this is probably going to happen. I, I think after the, you know, a couple of days of feeling a little bit taken aback, uh, the kind of strength of... Uh, I think an opera, one of the opera magazines was um, uh, was really pretty personal. Um, I was a bit like, mm, blimey. Um, uh, you know, and, and then I had like a deluge of emails from people saying, this is brilliant, you know, really excited about what you did in TV, see if you can do a similar thing in opera. Um, and those who know me know how I've worked and what my values are about being accessible and kind and... Um, forgiving of failure, but reaching out and being obsessed with excellence. Um, yeah, re within about two days, I was like, oh, cool, this is a decent industry with, with its values in the right place. So, and then I suppose you try not to let, you try and be forgiving, forgiving of the people who, who were a bit panicked when I turned up. And I just needed to reassure them, I think, that I only had Eno's interests at heart and opera's interests at heart, and hopefully, you know, most of them have seen that. So, and they can see, you know, this past year, opera attendance has gone up by 11% at ENO, made almost the biggest sur financial surplus in a decade. Um, I've, we're putting on more opera than we've done because we've made this money, putting the money into outreach, um, speaking up opera in the national press. Um, so hopefully they can see that, I, you know, I'm kind of not bothered about my personal sort of 
ambition. I, I wouldn't have taken this job if I was. You know, <laughs> it's, it's about opera. And I suppose one of the issues is that, and we've already spoken about it, that there's something unique about the, the E&O in the 80s kind of narrative, which I think above all companies and above everything else, people seem to just absolutely have, have fallen in love with. Mm. Um, but what many people miss that, you know, you've made the point there is that every year they had to go to the Treasury for a, for a handout. And, and I suppose part of your job is looking at the whole kind of business of opera differently as well, not just kind of how does work go on stage, but actually how do you create a company that is sustainable in current climes? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, you know... I don't remember much about the 80s because I was nine uh, in 1980 and I'm 47 now and it was six prime ministers ago and almost four decades ago so you know and um so so the 80s is in the past basically from your yeah I mean it's not just you know not just a recent past we're not on about the 90s or you know 2012 we're about 1980 so I you know I was nine I was still in primary school so um Things were quite different when I was in primary school. I think there were four TV channels. I think the arts in Britain were different. I think it'd be, you know, the stock exchange, people wrote on pieces of paper. Um, I think uh, politics was very different. Um, uh, you know, the world was a really, really, really different place. Um, we hadn't had, um, I think, you know, we hadn't had a female prime minister. There hadn't been a black American president. It was a very different place. So um, it's great that we've got people commenting on opera who have a fresh memory. I certainly don't. Um, but, you know, it's four decades ago. Um, so that's sort of what I mean that, um, you know, it's, it needs to move with the times. Not just because I want it to move with the times. The audience are telling us it needs to be more modern. Audiences in other theatres have... Um, facilities that are better in some ways than ours in some ways they don't because we're the biggest theatre in the west end and pretty glorious theatre but we haven't modernized to the extent that we should have done um they have an experience they, they're demanding experiences um or a, a relationship with an opera company that they get from other organizations like the national theatre or the royal shakespeare company they want things to, they want to be able to access things digitally they want to take part in the joy of what we're doing and see behind the scenes and they want to do a whole bunch of things and by constantly trying to revive the um uh the narrative four decades ago it, it seems like we're wasting energy thinking about that when really we should be looking around saying what, what do the next generation of people want and so and that's my job. So as an organisation, we've been saying, that's great, you can, you know, you can talk, talk about what happened four decades ago, but really we need to focus on the next generation. So let's give free tickets to under-18s at ENO. I don't think there's a national opera company in the world that gives free tickets to under-18s to the opera, but ENO does. So it's a fairly seismic shift in the opera world across the globe. Um, it's just what we should be doing. We should be at the vanguard of things like that. Um, we've, you know, we're doing a relaxed performance for kids who've got learning difficulties or uh, autism or for people who might make noise or want a more relaxed environment for their opera. Um, that's costing us quite a lot of money but because we won't be able to sell all their seats in the house. But it's just what we should be doing. And I think that helps position ENO as back where it should be for everyone, trying new things, um, 
undoing, you know, uh, refreshing the opera ecology on behalf of the whole theatre and ballet and opera industry. Now, I might be wrong, but you, you seem to quite enjoy ruffling feathers. It doesn't seem to be something that phases you. It doesn't phase me, but I don't enjoy it. I mean, because it, it God, it's really, it's interesting because someone else said that to me today who doesn't know me. Um, and I, I don't enjoy it because it hurts people and I'm quite a softy. Um, and, uh, you know, when I, was, when I was in TV, you know, I ran BBC Three and did it bringing on loads of new talent and had good relationships with people, writers, directors and presenters. And, you know, you have to be kind to people. People have their own stuff going on and the world's a tough place for a lot of people. Similarly at Sky, which is seen as quite a muscular and aggressive place to work, um, Hopefully I managed to change around the image of Sky One and bring on Sky Atlantic and Sky Arts and Sky Living by just being nice and warm and friendly. And certainly I don't enjoy having a fight with people. However, my role has to be to, to modernise ENO and I feel passionately that ENO is for everyone. Um, some people might like the idea that opera is a closed off thing only for a certain group of people, to be honest, I don't think there's many people who think that, but you know, I'm about broadening the place out. If people are upset by that, and there are kind of three or four, um, but they're noisy, then sort of they need to deal with that. I'm not gonna stop what we're doing. Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it's ruffling feathers in a bad way. I think it's, as you say, you've, you, you could have come here. Well, they, they might not have pointed you, but you could have come here and just kind of done what everyone kind of wanted you to do, I suppose, as you say, kind of keep, you know, kind of hark it back to a certain time, keep people sort mm. of vaguely happy, but more ruffling feathers in the way that you have got a vision mm. and you will stick to it, however many people might be very loud about it. Yeah, I mean, so how I work is, you know, we've got a weekly management team on Mondays where I've enlarged the management team. It's now almost 50-50 male-female, which it didn't used to be. People from lots of different levels on that team. And, um, and we discuss stuff. And so it's important to me that I'm surrounded by people who disagree with me. Um, so those who agree with me are basically replicating my opinion and I've already got my opinion pretty well covered. So I don't need another version of my opinion. So I tend to hire people who disagree with me regularly. Um, we've done our second all staff survey ever in 50 years of ENO, which speaks to a culture of you know, feedback and conversations. We, I did the first ever 360 degree feedback, which is where people who report into me anonymously and confidentially tell me what I'm doing wrong and what I'm doing right. I not only did that, and, I've hel and we've helped fund all the management team to do it, but I shared all, all the feedback I got with the team. So that's about saying we're a transparent company who's constantly thinking about how we improve. And look, I'm living it, I'm doing it. And warts and all, I'm trying to be a better leader and, um, and modernise how we think about leadership and how we think about a, what a great national arts institution should look like. Um, so, um, so I love disagreement. Um, and I definitely, constantly am open to people saying, how about we do this? And people saying, Stuart, your idea is rubbish in this way, or let's do that. Um, what I won't have is and I'm not going to listen to or take seriously, is people who want to have opera closed off. You know, my dad sprayed cars um, for 40 years, laying on his back on a bit of tarmac in a garage in Bradford um, and would listen to classical music on the radio. 
it's really important for people that people like my dad and people who work in office jobs as well as people in the arts but everyone in the country feels proud of english national opera opera north glyndebourne royal opera house it's not just for the few because it's state funded partly state funded and so you know the direction of travel here is to go even more open to work with people who can help us make it even more of a gateway opera house um, and if that means we're going to invite into the theatre <clears throat> people like Jeremy Vine or Sebastian Folks or um, Stanley Tucci or the Game of Thrones actors or Holly Willoughby, who bizarrely seems to have been picked out, um, if that means we're going to invite people in who can speak to millions of people on TV and radio and newspapers and social media channels, then that's what we're going to do. Um, as long as we don't isolate um, uh, an important opera fraternity. And I think we're getting the balance right, really. Well, well, looking at, again, that evening standard article you wrote, you said one of your main jobs is to try and keep everyone happy. So that's those long-standing, dare I say, kind of older audiences and these kind of newbies. I mean, given all of this backlash that has come, and we've seen it this week with the e and response stuff as well. I'd, I, would, I would question whether it's a backlash. I, I okay. think when, you know, we looked at, we sent out a message on, um, sorry, sorry, to mm -hmm. intro, but, you know, we sent out a message saying we're doing a new writers competition to bring on uh, new, the new opera reviewers of the future. You know, it got seen by 180,000 people, retweeted, 95% of comments were really positive. People saying, this is great. Always wanted to get into opera. We've had emails, we've had um, on social media people saying, this is amazing news. The way we funded it is by taking, uh, saying to opera critics, we're not going to give you a free ticket for your friends. So I, I don't bring my friends to work. We're suggesting we're going to take your friend's ticket and give it to these new reviewers. Now, some of those reviewers are upset by that. But we said, you know, you can buy a ticket for your friends. We're a charity. You can, you can pay for a ticket. But we spend £10,000 per opening night giving tickets to opera critics' friends. And I'm going to use some of that money to give them to new writers and new people at the start of their career. Yeah. So, yeah. And, you know, and, and, and as I say... And that you know, seems totally justifiable. I think. Yeah, I, 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 th I think it's, you know, I think broadening out who can talk about opera and who does talk about opera is really, really important. But I think in, in terms of the, the backlash I mentioned, I, th I suppose one of the issues that you're trying to address through this is that there are very few people that people can go to at the moment to get their opera news and opinions. You're looking at eight national critics, opera magazine and Twitter. Um, you know, I don't think anything's ever been sold through Twitter. So you're looking at those those critics, and you've had people like, you know, sorry to say, you know, Rupert Christensen, you know, is making himself look emptily vindictive, Fiona Maddox, expect a revolt. You know, already we're talking about 25% of the people that go to for opera news are really ham hammering you uh, about it. And for you, it's it's just about sticking to the your guns, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, it's oh God, I, it's, it's really important people have their view um, and it's really important they keep having their free tickets, which they will. Um, uh, and so, uh, you know, Rupert Christensen is an, a really nice guy. I've met him once or twice. Uh, to put in context, Rupert is, um, you know, in, in his article, which I skim read, he said, we're not addressing the real problems of ENO, um, like the canteen being overpriced. Okay, I wouldn't see that as a real problem of ENO. Uh, he's, he's slightly obsessed with the Victorian plumbing Coliseum. That's not what I would see as a real problem of ENO. Um, he said our artistic rep is a mess. 
It's not. The audience are coming in bigger numbers, 13,000 more people last season than the season before. Um, so he's got an opinion, uh, and I've also got an opinion, and I think he's wrong. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I, I, it's difficult because, um, you know, people can, because Rupert's been a, a reviewer for decades, um, uh, you know, he can often root things back in um, the rose-tinted past of the 1980s. Um, uh, I think uh, uh, one review he said, ENO should just be blown up and start again. To me, that says we probably need some new voices in the mix um, because, uh, you know, in the mix. Uh, having a national reviewer say, scrub ENO and start again, or to obsess about the price of our canteen or our plumbing is possibly shortchanging Telegraph readers, I would argue. Uh, I think it's important ENO keeps going broader, has presence on TV and radio and out there with the public. Um, and in the year and a half I've been here, we've pursued that strategy and it's paying you know, great dividends. It's doing really well, I think. Um, and I think some of them have seen that. So, um, you know, we've had uh, lots of commentators online, music magazine, BBC Music Magazine. I think the piece in the um, uh, Observer and the Telegraph was really fair, saying actually we've been uh, lauded for opening up to new audiences, bringing on people of colour. Um, uh, you know, so I, I, think it's, I think it's a balance. I'm not, I'm not particularly knocked. Um, and as an organisation, we're not particularly worried by that, by some of the negative comments this week. Let's look at some of those kind of uh, great kind of success stories coming out then. I mean, you've mentioned before the, the business side of the business. Mm. Um, you know, finances are looking healthier than they've been for quite a while. Yeah. The Arts Council are happy. Yeah, yeah. yeah good, yeah, good. That's what we like. Um, and you said lots of new audience through the door. I think 47% of new bookers last season. That's it. Um, I mean, is that is that kind of level of churn sustainable? Or I suppose is there a longer term vision as to how that 47% start to come more often. Yeah, I know you mean. It's a good question. So, yes, 47% of people last season had never been to an opera before. Um, of that 47%, 18% came back within a year. So, I mean, it's a good question because I, I think that's about right. Um, it's difficult to know, really, because no one has said this is what ENO should do in terms of new bookers to opera. I think if we're um, the opera house for everyone, which is why we were set up, um, and it's why we're singing English, and it's why we've frozen our top price ticket to 125 quid, and why we've reduced our lowest price ticket to a tenner, um, and we've got free tickets for under 18s. If I, I think half the house should always be first-time visitors, I think. I think them coming back quicker than uh, coming back in more numbers within the year, 18%. I think I'd like to be higher. <laughs> I'd like to be. You know, 100%, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um, but um, actually, I think we should be realistic. You know, London has loads of other theatres and uh, opportunities to go out. Um, I think uh, there are other opera houses, you know, also available. Um, and so for us to work as part of a whole theatre and opera and entertainment ecology, um, we need to be relaxed about people who come to us then going on to other people. Um, as we are with our performers and musicians. And the business side is, is working. I think um, 
We've done that by being really sharp on costs, you know, more efficient working practices. It's quite a boring thing to talk about. Um, getting better people um, who have experience um, and can bring new perspectives in. Uh, and, and then we've spent that money judiciously. So uh, we spent it more on opera outreach with Bayliss. So we've got with our outreach program called Bayliss. Um, we've spent lots on the Coliseum, which hasn't been done for years. So we've built a new box office. We've got a shop. We've got Expose the Mosaic, which you saw a moment ago. You're in the middle of a two-week... You just turned up to the building in the middle of a two-week renovation, um, which happens every year. Uh, we've got uh, a whole bunch of things. We've got new furniture. So we've spent it on things that visitors tell us they care about. Um, and, you know, we haven't taken seriously what our visitor experience is, as corny as that phrase might sound. Um, when people go to the V&A, they think about their enjoyment of the building. And they do when they go to Royal Opera House and, um, you know, the Dominion Theatre, I guess. And we probably haven't done that as well as we should have done over the past few years. And it, it possibly takes someone from a different industry, like me, um, who isn't an opera specialist to bring a bit of objectivity to those decisions, um, I would argue. I mean, another part of this kind of um, looking to diversify the income has been bringing in these uh, musicals coming into the Coliseum yeah, yeah, every yeah, year. Yeah. I mean, have you seen benefits to that happening outside of just kind of the, the higher income? Um, what you mean? So uh, musical audiences coming to opera? We haven't, actually. <laughs> um, so um, what we have done is, we, you know, we realised that um, I think it's about 250,000 people come into the Coliseum building for musicals, ballet, and increasingly podcasts. So we did the Guilty Feminist podcast here. We did a kind of comedy cabaret with Johnny Wu. Um, and we're doing other stuff, which we'll announce through the year. And we saw all those audiences coming into the theatre, but for lots of them, I don't think they realised it was the home of English National Opera. It says it on the welcome mat, but... You know, we didn't really kind of sell opera to them. So really early on, we fitted out um, lots of TVs in the building that would sell what we do to that incoming audience. Um, we haven't yet been able to track the amount of non-opera audience that's then gone through to opera. Um, uh, but I suspect it's there. I think it's just a question of us having um, granular um, audience feedback, which we're sort of missing at the moment. Well, I'll certainly be here for Hairspray. No, <laughs> I mean, the important thing about, you know, Hairspray is it will fund for operas. Um, and so the opera that we do is different to the opera that commercial companies do. We're there to bring on new performers, which we do with our Howard trainee scheme, uh, new conductors, which we do with our McCarris scheme. We're to do, we have a phenomenal outreach programme, taking opera out to 8,000 people, which is something commercial, uh, commercial opera houses aren't positioned as well to do. We spend a million and a half on the Coliseum every year, so we curate that for the for the country. Um, so we do a whole bunch of things that commercial opera, opera companies don't do and can't do. But, um, so, you know, that's, that's why we do musicals, to, to keep opera going and keep it alive. Let's, let's end by kind of turning our attention to the new season, which, yeah. is, which is, I suppose, the main reason why we're, we're all here. Um, now, coming from television, you'll be familiar with repeats. Um, the Mikado <laughs> is back, yeah. um, as is Minghella's Butterfly. Mm. I mean, what roles do these kind of hardened classic productions play in your vision for a more kind of forward-looking contemporary, you know? I suppose... You should ask the audience, you know, if an audience tells us they want something, we should give them it. That's sort of my view in life. 
Um, <clears throat> and so it's a mix of giving them what they want and giving them things they don't yet know they'll love. And I always had that in telly. So um, we're not, we're going to try not to put things on that people won't come to. Um, people tell us when we speak to them that they wanted the Mikado back. So we scheduled it and it's selling through the roof, selling really well. Um, and I imagine it'll have sold out performances. Um, we got the same with Anthony Minghella directed Butterfly um, and Carmen. Um, and in turn, the success of those will help fund um, newer pieces. So, uh, you know, um, Office in the Underworld from Emma Rice. She hasn't directed opera before. Uh, it's going to be amazing. We've seen the rehearsals. It's looking great. We can do that because we've got the big bums on seats operas, which have obviously artistic value in their own right. Um, I think it's really different to TV where you're sort of putting a DVD in a machine. Obviously, it doesn't quite work like that, but you're just putting a DVD in a machine. Here, even when we do a revival of an opera, it hires 705 people in front of house and in our full-time staff, as well as the kind of virtual community of set designers and trainee, uh, people who are training the singers and, you know, the repetiteurs and other people behind any opera. So everyone's rehired every time you have a revival. It's not the case in TV. Um, it's still something audiences want to come to and get excited by. It gives us an opportunity to bring on new singers and new talent. Um, we've got a bunch of people who are going to be conducting for the first time ever in the next season. And we tend to put those on the revivals so they can learn their craft in an area where everyone else is familiar. Um, uh, so, yeah, and it, it funds new work that we're doing through Studio Live and we're going to start to do it elsewhere across the country. So I don't make any excuses for, for that. It should be, should be brilliant. And as you say, it's this balance between the, the box office smashes and the slightly more, uh, the slightly less popular stuff that's, that's going to happen. I mean, again, I'm interested in maybe it doesn't draw from your TV commissioning hat, but looking at, you know, you're going to need those big box office smashes. Mm. And what's your approach to finding the next Miller Mercado? Is it very much kind of you and the team sitting around and going, look, this is the right team, this is the right show to give us something that will run for 20 seasons? Or or do you kind of have a different approach as to how you'll help fill that gap in your season that you'll always need to get the bums on seats? You know, you raise such a good point. I think often when people look at bringing on the next generation of people in whatever medium or industry, they tend to lean towards bringing on avant-garde directors or writers. And, you know, they have a short-term life. They're a bit like magnesium. They burn brightly, but they're over within seconds. And, um, uh, and it's really, really important. We also bring on the next generation of people who can do the uh, John Crossley, Jonathan Miller um, kind of stalwart productions that come back year after year. So I don't get involved in the artistic. Um, I don't believe the answer to good leadership is to micromanage. And so, um, you know, when I do that, it's for a reason. And um, But I, t I really, really try not to do that with artistic. What we do as a team is set the strategic framework. So we say we need a bunch of broad things every year. Uh, we need to start training up now those broad directors or composers um, of the future. Um, so let's not be nervous about putting relatively new talent of any age in roles where they're directing broad pieces and give them guidance saying, you know, we don't want this to, um, this isn't one of those pieces that needs to shock or disgust or appall the nation. This is something we want to bring back every five years. There's a mix, as with everything, 
at the other end of the spectrum, ENO has a job to do on bringing opera that absolutely satisfies opera passionistas and opera experts. And um, it's like a Rubik's Cube. It's really, really important. ENO doesn't just appeal to first-time opera goers, but has something for people who come to every single production. So 18 months in, have you got your head around this kind of opera business, this opera, this opera world now, do you think? Yeah, I mean, well, blimey. I think, I think the f- part of the fun of working in an opera house is that every day is really, really different. And I know that's quite a corny thing to say, but, um, you know, so yesterday we were chatting about um, Alice, who's, uh, you know, the lead um, taking over from uh, Sarah Connolly, uh, and she is incredible. And so we're talking about her rehearsals and how great they are. Um, then I've just had a meeting about posters for the season 2021. Um, uh, later on today, I'm meeting an MP to talk about um, ENO and what we're doing in terms of um, in in a area outside London, what we're doing to try and bring try and bring disparate communities together through music. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's a, it, it's a fresh, alive, ever-changing industry. So, yeah, I, I really love it. I feel really, really lucky to be in this position. It's a proper privilege. And I, I just hope that when, you know, when I leave Vienna, I'll leave it in a better state than how I found it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, it's an amazing company. And it deserves lots of, lots of the plaudits and lots of the um, sort of celebration that it's now starting to get again, which I'm very proud of. And final question, which we ask everyone, if there's one opera that you could, you know, see on the stage here at ENO that's not currently in the pipeline, you know, what would you, what would you really like to see? I'm a real softy and a sucker for stuff. And um, I was just going to show you my Spotify that I was listening to just to prove the point. <laughs> so I was, I could cry every single time I hear it. And I was literally, here we go, just listening to the magic flute. <clears throat> um, I tried to sing it at home. I was trying to sing various bits of it in the shower today, and my cocker spaniel and cockapoo were joining in. Um, and well, yeah, we've got a piano in the room we're in at the moment. I, <laughs> you definitely. I don't could get it up on IMSLP you. and you know, <laughs> have a sing song. Um, I think in terms of classical music, I'm obsessed with Shostakovich. Um, uh, I love Stravinsky. Um, I think actually it'd be great if Eno could do more concert performances. Um, I want the Coliseum to be a kind of crazy house of imagination. So this season we're introducing more art into the building, um, which you'll see in lots of different places. Um, I want it to be a place where kids who feel like they don't quite fit at school can come here and feel like they found their group and their tribe. Uh, you know, there's so many remarkable idiosyncratic people in opera um, that we need to be... Uh, a house that fits around them and so you know we're a big broad church that's lovable and welcoming Stuart Murphy thank you very much indeed all the best for the uh, search for the new artistic director and for the new season and uh, we wish you all the best thank you very much thanks a lot pleasure to chat so thank you very much to Stuart for his time last week and as I mentioned earlier their new season opens on the 1st of October lots of really interesting things there lots of things that people will disagree with lots of things that people will you know absolutely get on board with um i suppose a couple of things for me interesting talking about the new artistic director he's very happy to look for someone from outside of 
opera. Again, the type of thing that a lot of people will, <laughs> will, will really take umbrage at. How do you do it? How do you become the artistic director of an opera company if you're from outside opera? I mean, what do you mean by outside opera? Like never seen. I like, don't well, know. Yeah, yeah. Someone, someone that doesn't that doesn't that doesn't work in opera, doesn't direct it, isn't currently running a company. Maybe he's running a theatre company. Someone with you know Stuart's background. And I think what's really interesting again that one of the main reasons that people are really taken against him is this fact that he's come from television. Yeah, he doesn't know much. You know, he might like opera very much, but he doesn't know much about it. To be to be, you know, to be quite to, yeah. to be quite frank. Um, but his argument is that. Why should we see opera differently to other art forms? Why should we not just have people with great creative ideas yeah. who are clicked into society and culture? And you've got people like Martin Brabins who know who know yeah, about opera. He knows about opera. A, team, yeah. a team around that will kind of support that, but actually someone as an AD who is much more of just a general creative plugged in head about it. Yeah, I mean I sort of see where he's coming from, I suppose. It's it's hard, isn't it, because it jars with me. I want an artistic director who knows all of Schubert's operas and like that, that that odd one that never gets performed, um, but I, and as you were talking that we don't want it to be a heritage piece or a museum piece. Perhaps this counters that. Perhaps somebody with a wider view of the arts is what it needs. But there are skills that are unique to opera. There are artistic decisions, and um, be it casting, be it mm. be it voice type. I think that's the main thing it, an yeah. AD usually brings on board, isn't it? It's you know yeah. Op- opening the contact book and, yeah. and getting in yeah, touch yeah. with the singers that are the the right people to the directors. But again, you know, I mean, Stuart, and we've seen from this season that 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 Daniel's, you know, he's obviously left now, but he's planned. You've got people like Wayne McGregor, you've got yeah. people like Emma Rice coming in and making work. So, again, I suppose Stuart's argument would be, why does this have to be someone that's this whole thing about someone that's worked in opera forever and, uh, and knows all of the opera people? Yeah. My fear is a repertoire, though, as well. It's like you asked, oh, what would you like to see? It's not in the pipeline that you haven't done. What would you like to see? And he came up with Magic Flute, which English National Opera have done to death of the last few years. Um, my worry is that do we shrink the repertoire then? Because people come in and they realise, oh, the Magic Figure is great. Yeah, it is. So we do that. But we, we've done that. Are we, do we reinvent the wheel? Do, do we kick out all this experience that, we've, we, that other people have, mm. bringing people who perhaps haven't got that, and we reinvent... What's already occurred? Well, well, that's a very good point, and it, again, it comes back to this central argument of what should, what should we be doing to bring opera uh, more more plug it into society and culture? Should we would be looking at the past and finding ways of of reinventing the favourites, mm-hmm. or should we be looking at either obscure stuff or new stuff that helps us kind of speak to people? And I think the problem isn't the product; it's the packaging. I think we would all right with the operas themselves are great. I, w- I would be delighted to have a lengthy argument with anybody to the, the I don't know, Don Giovanni's not great. I would love to sit down and have a good chat about why it is great. But I don't feel the need to go to an opera house and clap at the appropriate points and, and, so, and all that packaging and all that sort of... But it's not just the physical packaging of sitting there clapping. It's the... It's the what's the word? society the sort of like the baggage that comes with it mentally that you can only like this if you read james joyce and understand what picasso were trying to do the opera sort of like there's a rite of passage before you can enjoy opera mm. and it it's that packaging that i think we need rid of more more than to frantically change the music itself uh, there, there is often this sort of like intellectual intellectual veneer around yeah. productions isn't there it's unnecessary yeah Look, yeah, look how clever I am, because look, I'm, I'm making reference in my production to those David Hockney sets of the Rake's Progress. Aren't I clever for knowing that? 
It doesn't say no, does it? Yeah. It doesn't it uh, say no yeah. to an audience. Someone uh, showed a review in for the opera I've just directed and someone said that my con- my directing was simple and that's the greatest compliment yeah. anyone yeah. could ever give me. Yeah. Simple, yeah, you know, told a story. made sense. Yeah. I, uh, that's, all, that's what I'm about. That's, that's fine. That's yeah. what you want. And perhaps Stuart can bring that to ENO. Perhaps that simplicity, that simplicity. clarity. You know, I really enjoyed talking to Stuart. I think, I think it's, I think it's very useful to have these new perspectives. It's a new voice, isn't it? Not artistic yeah. director, whoever that is, going to be crucial. Yeah. To seeing how how it kind of goes forward, um, we must come on to, as I mentioned in that interview with Stuart, um, one of the, the I suppose the the latest big announcement from ENO is ENO Response. This is the new scheme to take away the plus one uh, tickets that critics get and instead give them to 10 new up-and-coming writers who might not know anything about opera um, but who will come along, have a fresh perspective on the work and then E&O will kind of promote and publish their reviews. Um, now, this taking away of plus one tickets has not gone down well. They're not happy. I, <laughs> I did a few little quotes in that interview. But I'm just going to read some of them out uh, in full um, Alexandra Coughlin, The Spectator, she said, if you lose this, you lose the long-term viability of the profession and with it the expertise and experience built up over many years' work. Fiona Maddox, she said, critics introduce new people to opera with the best advocates. This decision may backfire, expect a revolt. Rupert Christensen, Stuart Murphy is deaf to the institution's underlying problems and earned him a mocking press. Some of his ideas have been prissy, some crass, some well-meaning virtue signals. E&O is making itself look emptily vindictive by cocking a snook at those whose friendly understanding it should be courting. So they're not know, happy. Stuart they're Murphy happy, might say it's, it's, it's not a backlash, but this is you know this has been building for quite a long time. That's you know, a backlash. You know he's, it definitely he's is. he he recognises that people have not taken kindly to his appointment or some of the things that he's done. For some reason, this taking away their plus one has really ignited something. I will be completely honest. I don't have a lot of time for these critics. Um, I'm not losing sleep that they've lost their no, plus to be, ones. To be, Wealthy to be quite, people. Nah. To be to be quite frank with you, and I love the idea of the you know response scheme, and I'll and I'll tell you why. One of the big reasons that we started OperaCast in the first place is to try and get get new people talking about opera. Yeah. It's trying to legitimise that you don't have to have seen every production at the Opera House for 40 yeah. years um, to have an opinion. You don't have to be able to pronounce everything correctly to have an opinion. Don't because, get me on. Because we, <laughs> yeah. we, yeah. Certainly, yeah. we certainly don't. <laughs> you know, what is wrong with someone going and seeing a work who doesn't know anything about it yeah. And having an opinion and kind of and, and giving it, it's, it's as you were saying before about a lot of productions are, are kind of produced with a veneer of you need to know everything yeah. that's going on, you need to know the production yeah. history, yeah. you need to know all these, and that's what critics kind of hold on to. Yeah. I think a lot of the time because they have seen every production for the last forty years. Yeah, and now that new people into opera is good. It's just good, isn't it? Yeah. We we want new voices in opera, but we don't want to kick out the old particularly, well not all of them, yeah. um, but just. It's it's there. It's not for it's not for everybody, perhaps, but perhaps for anybody. Yeah, it's the balance. I mean, you know, maybe taking away people's plus ones, maybe that. I mean, how many other? How many plus ones are we talking? Well, can't be that bad. <laughs> I, well, I mean, I do slightly have a bit of a point there, you know. And you know, look, often it doesn't. It's not completely full. It's a massive theatre. I think it's never full. I mean, Rupert Christensen calls it well-meaning virtue signalling, but something like this. Whether the plus ones, um, they can afford them or not, what this says is, look, we're going to democratise who's yeah. coming and seeing things. We're going to democratise who we're giving free tickets to. Yeah. 
So in a way, maybe this is is kind of virtue signalling, but I don't mind it. But that's good. It's good. No, I don't really. And there was a risk that Ian and, and Comet Gone were getting ever close together, and they weren't. They were meant to be very, very different things, but they weren't. They were becoming more and more the same thing. So perhaps this new direction is what we need. Yeah, and I tell you what, I really take. I don't go on many tirades on our podcast, no. but no, go on, go on. F- Fiona Maddox's comment, and I, I, you know, I enjoy reading her work absolutely. Um, but when she says that that critics are the best advocates for opera, no, they're not. With, with <laughs> the, the the very few people that read newspapers nowadays, yeah, you know, I mean, what kind of what is almost almost what is a point of reviews? Um, maybe some people decide what they're going to see based on reviews, but I wonder if it's more actually just for the companies themselves themselves it's nice to put four stars on something on but if, if you're if you're the critic writing for a paper that either people read or it's behind a paywall how are you the best advocate for opera are you not yeah is someone like holly willoughby who stuart murphy brings along to eno yeah, she, she potentially goes, she? a far better advocate if she's stuck on her twitter else. page oh don giovanni were great that's definitely going to help in it yeah i just it's just trying to hold it feels like just trying to hold on to something in a world that doesn't yeah. probably exist anymore. Are they the last bastions? Are they the sort of like the old school that are still there, the critics? Is that this wall of the last bastions of opera and they feel they're being got at? Potentially. Yeah. Um and I think it's it's just it's broadening out who's coming, who's talking about it. And it's not just kind of, you know, in aspic the certain kind yeah. of critics and commentators that they've always been. Yeah. Let's open it out, let's broaden it and let's see what yeah, what people have to think. I'm comfortable with that. Yeah, I think that I think that's a good decision. By yeah, um, well done, well done, Stuart. I've got I've got one more question on this for you, Ben. And now what I don't want is is kind of a Brexit tirade. Excellent. Um, I've got I'm good at them. But obviously, you know, kind of talking about critics, you yeah. know, a lot of newspapers have been cutting costs, and one of, one of the big things that have gone out are critics at papers. Yeah. You know, this whole process of you know responses about getting people in that don't know much about it to write about it. Is this all kind of part of our general sort of distrust of experts our disinterest in experts i mean that's a right zeitgeist thing in it it's art of the time that yeah. we don't trust the experts i worry about i don't like that because surely because we've just been sitting here going like saying, why, yeah, why should we listen to these experts because they're, they're experts <laughs> we should listen to anyone um an expert opinion could be given but then shouldn't be taken as gospel. Is that is this expectation in the past that experts say why, and then that is the truth? I'm happy with an expert opinion being given about something, but then that is a voice in the debate and can be discussed and, and, is, and is not some sort of like set in stone opinion that this is the truth. I think that's the problem. In the past, whatever these critics have said is the truth. And it's not always. And it's yeah. not... I mean, they haven't always agreed with themselves, have they? Um... But to totally disregard them and lose that is is unnecessary. It's a good question because it is of the time, isn't it? We don't we don't listen to experts. Experts don't know this. Experts mm. don't know that. But then the problem is, people that really don't have a clue tell us what they think, and is their opinion every bit the same? But that's what we've just been discussing, isn't it? No. Got you thinking there. Uh, you've got me thinking. You've genuinely got me thinking. L- listen, listeners, write in. I listeners, think. write in. Get get on Twitter. Um, but I think I think generally what we've been saying is it, it is about this mix, isn't it? What do I think? Yeah, because I hate the the pompous entitlement of some critics. Not all of them, but some of them. But they do know the stuff often. But it depends what what is knowing your stuff with opera. Is it yeah. is it knowing all the roles that 
Erwin Trott has ever sang? Is it knowing every single new production of Don Giovanni at the Royal House for the past hundred years, or is it, or is it sitting in a theatre and watching it? For me, why does it? Why does yeah. it? For me, it's about the art. It's about the opera. It's about the opera. My, I've, I'm, I'm, I'm a musician at heart. That's what I'm a musician. So I'm much more interested in the opera. I, yeah, productions can annoy me. Or, or not, but I'm much more interested in the composition. And my my knowledge of opera is the knowledge of of the score of the composition. I don't know who sang what at Covent Garden in what year or what production was there. My my knowledge and my passion is the art form itself. So that's what I want to hear. I want to hear how people respond to the music, how they respond to the the characterization in this bit of writing, the 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 vocal writing here. That's that's what what floats my boat. Um, and to be honest, a lot of these expert critics don't mention that much. It becomes about the performance, doesn't it? I suppose because the operas are unchanged for 200 years, there's nothing new to say. So they become... So my... What I'd like is somebody with a musical ear, a musical knowledge, but perhaps fresh to the productions and the the way of doing things in opera, but still with that base musical knowledge to comment on it. So, a, so it's an expertise, a musical expertise... But not an expertise. Not that's, yeah, there's no. That's actually that's my answer to the expert question. <laughs> I want people who have a, a general wide expertise in music, but are not laden with baggage commenting on the art. That's my yeah. That's my question. Experts, yeah, but not with baggage. That's what we want. I think I'm there. <laughs> Let us know what you think. Get in touch. Yeah. Info at operacast.co.uk, or you can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We'd be really interested to hear your thoughts. So, moving on to, again, uh, something which has conjured up a fair bit of debate over the past few weeks. Um, Catherine Lewick, as Eurydice in Salzburg, oh, yeah. was referred to as a fat woman in tight corsets spreading her legs um, by one of the critics. There are a number of comments along yeah. this this line. This is brought up, again, we had it a few years ago with um, Tara Errata to Glyndebourne. We had Debbie Voice a couple of years before that, didn't yeah. we? It keeps re- reappearing in this um, one. What was really the, the kind of a storm erupted over some of these comments that the critic in question, um, Manuel Brugge, um, hit back saying, um, I'm going to have to read this out. If she shows her body on stage, she has to deal with being described like that. Her corset was so tight and short, it made it deliberately and abundantly clear that this was a woman who was being shown as fat. Um, <laughs> so, I, so backtracked. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, I think there are a couple of things here. One is, why, why comment on something like this if it if it doesn't make a difference. No. However, there is a there is potentially a point here, just to kind of play devil's advocate, that if, as a director, you're showing different types of people on a stage and you're dressing people in a particular way, as a, surely what the director's sort of doing is trying to put attention visually to something on that stage. It's a visual art form. At that point, in performance and production, it's a visual art form. So people are going to comment on what it looks like. They are. It, could, it, it didn't have to be that nasty. They, the, the, it, it seems unnecessarily unkind mm. what he wrote, doesn't it? But people are going to comment on on how something looks. And there does seem to be a difference between opera and you know theatre, television, film, where yeah. we never in those really question. Well, we just take for granted that that what people look like is being shown to us because that's what that's appropriate. The director the, wants yeah. us to see. Whereas opera, it seems a bit different. I suppose it's because there are. With it being such a technical art form, there are only a certain yeah. number of people that can sing certain roles. Yeah. And we're slightly more restricted in who those people might be. But it does seem that opera does seem to be a a rare case in 
in it's point, naive of other opera. performance yeah. mediums without, without ballet you don't see too many large ballet dancers <laughs> no, <should we> say. <laughs> no, um, no. but actually the visual appearance of people is, is we, we don't really have a question in other arts well, fil- film arts. stars actor, f- leading ladies leading men are good looking humans they, they are. There, are there are plenty that, of operas uh, yeah. sorry plenty of films whether you like them or not like Shallow Hal and those sorts yeah, of things yeah. which is all about here's a larger person yeah. here's, a, here's a thinner person yeah. and that's part of the and story that, that is a story that, that, yeah there is, I think, the reality of modern day life and um, and and the performance is it's a visual art form, and people on stage, on films, on screen are often judged on how they look. Now, if it didn't affect the story in any way, but I suppose he's saying by the way the director dressed her that it did affect us, that, that it was a, a theme that the director was bringing out, so this was worthy of comment. So. Perhaps it would have been nice if it had been not so unkind about it, but perhaps it is a valid point to make in your critique of that performance. But it could do it nicer. I don't, I don't, yeah, it could do it a lot nicer. But, um, yeah, performers are judged on their appearance. And if they should be or they shouldn't be, I suspect that it'd be nice if there wasn't. Mm. I think but Johnny a... Depp didn't get that role in Pirates of the Caribbean, did he? Just for his acting. He looked right. Yeah. He, he looked right for it, and so that came into the casting yeah. decision. I, th- I think for me here, the, the the issue is kind of more broader societal ones, which yeah. w- which we're not getting into here on, on, on opera cast, but, um, you know, questions around what, what, what should people look like? What sh- you know, how yeah. should people appear is, 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 a, is a much broader question than it is necessarily. It's a much broader question. And in society, everyone should be accepted and fine, but stick yourself on a stage and people are going to make a comment on it. And they are. And it, perhaps they shouldn't, but they do. I've read... Plenty of reviews where read one about um, a duke in um, Rigoletto that uh, described him as a podgy little cherub rather than, rather than some lascivious duke, and and so people do make make these comments and they probably shouldn't, but mm. but they do. And as a audience member, it does change how you view a character, what they look like. It, it does. It does in a film. It does on a play. It does in an opera, and we're no different to that. Yeah. So it is. Uh, it... It's interesting, and I think whilst there's many things to take take offence at here, that we yeah, someone said it like that. Yeah, sometimes we need to take a little step back and actually think, kind of, well, okay, let's think about this in context of other of other forms and whatnot, and actually, is, yeah. is is there something in here in terms of what right we have to do to kind of question what people kind of look like on a stage and whether yeah. that's something we should we should take grant for granted. Um, uh, one one of the kind of other things that's kind of coming as part of this this argument is the kind of suggestion that a lot of the times in the marketing of opera that kind of marketing departments will use models rather than actual <laughs> yeah, do, singers. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of putting a pressure on singers to kind of look a certain way. It's an acknowledgement from the marketing department that that human beings are visual and are more likely to turn up if they've seen a model on a poster. Then that must be based in fact. That must be the marketing people have looked at that and made that decision. Oh, we'll sell more tickets if we put them on. It's a reality. It might be an unsavoury reality, but it's a reality. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with marketing departments using whoever they use. I mean, you know, yeah. th- there's some very blunt practical things like, you know, you try getting a singer yeah. 12 months in advance when you've got to make the poster. To fly over to and, yeah. Precisely to go and do the thing. Um, I think more the question here is, you know, are we are the impression we're putting out of, of what opera looks like and who sings in opera yeah. against what people kind of actually look like. And is that damaging to, is that putting pressure on singers? Um, I mean, there's there's things like the kind of the, the Barry Hunks sort of um, yeah yeah there is in movements there. and things isn't there which is does seem a little bit unnecessary yeah potentially yeah yeah the the, the few that I don't I think if you the problem with singing you're right is it's the voice we need people that make the right sound and I will always I will always want it to sound right again 
conductor, listens to a lot of, goes and watches a lot of opera with my eyes shut. And I'm, perfect, <laughs> and I'm perfectly happy. So I'm always going to, first and foremost, want it to sound right. That's my primary concern. Yeah. And then. And I think that's what this comes down to, isn't yeah. it? That if we want it to sound absolutely in the, the way that we want it to, and sound is imperative, yeah. that it doesn't matter what people well, I think look it, like. And even if it doesn't matter, we've got to accept that that perfect unity of everything we want in a performer might not always be available. Because mm. when it does come together, Temp Kaufman, sounds great, looks great, can act. Off you go to the stars, don't you? It's an international career. When it does come together, brilliant. Um, but it's, it's not going to come together always. But when it doesn't, I don't think it's wholly unreasonable for critics to point it out. In a slightly lighter note of um, people's physical appearance being uh, noteworthy, I don't know if you've seen Shirley Bartley's new um, album cover. No, she's got a beard on it, but I've heard all about this is a bearded Chichilia, isn't it? Yeah, it's, 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 it's fabulous. And I, um, she's done a, a new album um, kind of inspired by um, songs from uh, by uh, Farinelli originally. Right, is it Castrati Land? Um, and she's got this fabulous new album cover. The main reason I, I mention it is that there are, there are many things you can see online of the worst classical album covers of all time. Yeah, yeah. And there are some absolute humdingers. Brilliant. But, but for me, it is fabulous. Chili Bartley, full beard. Full beard. Um, again, not not great content for radio, but yeah. we'll we'll post it yeah. and have a look. And, and I don't care because I bet it sounds great. I oh. bet I bet it sounds brilliant. I've not I, heard it. And I just think it looks. Yeah. I think it looks fantastic. Good for her. Absolutely. I like the fact that somebody went to her with that idea and went right. We've got you this beard. And she went. Yeah, she seems. Yeah, she seems yeah, I'm good with that. I think yeah. she seems like she'd be yeah. up for a bit of. I'll uh, have a bit of beard actually. Yeah. Um, fantastic. We'll, we'll we'll post. You can you can take a look. Yeah. Um, a very brief roundup of the opera that you can see on TV, film, and here on radio over the coming month. Um, as I mentioned, Royal Opera House's Don Giovanni, well worth a watch. Cinemas the eighth of October. Um, depending on when you listen to the next Operacast episode, uh, that Don Pasquale. Uh, with Bryn Turfel in the lead role, will be at cinemas on the 24th of October. The aforementioned Placido Domingo 50th anniversary concert... Won't be occurring. <laughs> <laughs> the 1st of October from Verona, so if you want to uh, go along to that and, you know, throw things, that's, yeah, that's yeah, completely enjoy. up to you. And the Metropolitan Opera's Turandot, the 12th of October at cinema screens. And as I mentioned before, sadly we are a panellist short this month, so there'll oh, be no opera quiz. A victory with the should. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you can you can take the crown. Yeah, yeah, I'm un, loving that. Yeah. Unchallenged. Yeah. Um, so we're going to end. Um, we're still with a with kind of a list item. Um, the Guardian have been very busy recently doing their rundown of the top cultural picks of the 21st century. Um, in their top uh, classical music picks. Uh, from the past 19 years. A number of operas have been included in there, including Brett Dean's Hamlet, Gerald Barry's The Importance of Being Earnest, um, and Harrison Burt Whistle's The Minotaur, and the, the top opera pick being George Benjamin's Written on Skin. Um, I think what was interesting for me looking through this list, Ben, was that um, I probably only heard of about half of them, which I don't yeah. know whether that speaks more for my... Um... No, no, I'm absolutely, I'm abs- <laughs> I'm abs- I'm absolutely the same. I've, I've yeah, not heard of much. I mean, it's because I had art form... 90% of what we see is 100 years old, isn't it? That's, that's the reality. So given the list of, unless I've been involved in it or really someone's caught me and I've, I've made a point of learning it, I don't know many of these works mm. either. That's of, the reality. Of of the ones they kind of picked out, do you think any will particularly stand the test of time? I mean, there are lots of kind of intriguing experimental ones on there. There's things yeah. like Jennifer Walsh's Live Nude Girls. Um, you know, there's things like Kurtag's Vinder Party. You know, there's, there's some... Um, Testing, uh, t- yeah, yeah, <laughs> testing I, ones in there, but there's things like you know Benjamin's written on skin has been very, you know, yeah, it's been very popular, very popular. Um, Brett Dean's Hamlet. I was uh, surprised again. not to see Anna Nicole in there. I thought that was great. Anna Nicole, the opera was fantastic. That was really good in that. That 
I, I think might have a, a life. It's an entertain, entertaining work, but they didn't make the list. I'd, lo- I'd, love to, I'd love to know how the list was put together. Oh, I don't know. But, yeah. what, what was really interesting was that uh, some of these, you know, um, like the top theatre, top film, I like the top 100, but when it came to classical music, they could only sort of pick 25. <laughs> yeah, yeah they couldn't, couldn't get 100. And that's, that, not, like, that's not 25 operas. That's no, no, all classical, classical music. music. Yeah. Um, which is perhaps perhaps slightly telling. I mean, it's probably, we probably could do with a... We got a greater. If you look at the sort of like the play sheets of of Berlin in the nineteenth century, um, it's three new operas and Don Giovanni. That that's the ratio, and then somehow it all changed. So perhaps we should go back to that a bit. Yeah. Well, um, what I find really interesting is I've had my head in Shakespeare and opera for the past couple of yeah, months. So so fascinating to see that in that list there are two Shakespeare operas in there: The Tempest, yeah, um, and 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 Hamlet. So his uh, his influence will. We'll never go we'll away. Never, that's never going, is and it? And I'm still yeah. waiting, please, someone, for the Richard III opera. Surely. Surely. Surely there is a top draw Richard III opera. The, 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 yeah. And actually, any of the historical plays. Yeah, they've been overlooked. Yeah, they have, haven't they? I'm not going to get into my thing Do, about it, why yeah. that is. But, uh, Richard III, the opera. Richard III, yeah. Henry V. Oh, come on, someone. You, yeah, Monty found a car park in Leicester recently. We could have done it all at the same time. Yeah. Mr. Mr. Trick. Mr. Burt, Mr. It takes Burt, you a long try an opera. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's why Brexit the opera's not out yet. I'm amazed. Yeah. <laughs> we we will wait for that. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Ian in a couple yeah. of in a couple of years' time. It's coming at thirty first of October or not. Or not. Or not perhaps <laughs> later. I keep, get, I keep getting alerts. We're leaving, are we? Yeah, we'll yeah, see. yeah. We're anyway, anyway, let's leave anyway, that. Let's leave that one. For all the gonna, podcasts. We're not gonna address that, are we? Um what we do have this month, though, is our regular hidden gem item. Inspired by the top operas and classical music of the 21st century, I've picked one of my personal favourites from recent times, and that is Raymond Yu and Lee Warren's The Original Chinese Conjurer, uh, based on the true story of a magician uh, called William Robinson, um, who was uh, originally from New York, but adopted the persona of a Chinese magician called Chung Ling Su, fooled the world into thinking that he was a, a magical um, Chinaman, uh, which was which was very popular from a publicity um, point of view. It's, it's a fascinating true story of how he kind of came up with this persona and, and fooled the world into thinking that he was actually Chinese. Um, what I really love about the opera, yes, the story is is fantastic but the the musical influences is what really gets me and it's this kind of wonderful mix of yes kind of at times more of a should we say a challenging contemporary sound and um, but it's the way that Raymond Yu brings in a lot of kind of the Chinese influences and Chinese instruments is the way it brings in kind of some of the music hall sounds that would have been kind of uh, familiar to the to the characters of the opera he brings in musical theatre influences um, and I think as well so much contemporary opera wants to push the boundaries of what music can sound yeah. like. This is a really great example of someone testing some of those waters, but also bringing in a tune, a tune. I like a tune, and saying there's yeah. nothing wrong with that. So for you know, for me, it's a it's a really interesting musical mix. Um, it premiered at uh, Oldborough, um, I think about ten years ago, um, and then was in London for a little while, but has has been done um, occasionally since. Um, but it's it's a it's a great piece, fantastic libretto by by Lee Warren, and such a good fun piece and. All the time, I am asked, "What's a great first opera?" <laughs> you now, say it's it's very yeah. hard to to see a performance of this, but this is the type of thing that actually would be you could really get yeah, people excited. It's got magic in it. Opera. It's it's great. So, Raymond Yu and Lee Warren's original Chinese Conjurer is our pick this month. So, thank you very much for joining us, Ben. Pleasure Not as always. All. Love being here. We seem to have got through a lot of content this yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, good that one. Um, Really fascinating stuff. Thank you again to Stuart Stuart Murphy. Great to sit down with him and talk about his plans. We'll be back next month. Um, we've got we've I know we've had a fabulous array of, of guests over the past few months, but we've really got some some knockout people coming up 
um, up until Christmas. So um, do make sure. <laughs> when it tails off. <laughs> <laughs> and then after yeah, that, yeah, we, yeah. you know, yeah. no, um, confirmed up until the end of the year, some, some fantastic guests who I, I won't reveal now, but um, uh, well worth sticking around for. Um, so do rate, review and subscribe to OperaCast on your favourite podcast channels. Tell your friends, tell your family, tell your close acquaintances, tell people you like, tell people you don't like. Don't like met in the pub, anyone. Get them signed up to listen to OperaCast. Thank you very much. And we will see you in October. Goodbye.